Well, you know, we're, we're heading here into Easter week, and I've got two extra reminders. I had two extra um, Easter announcements that I wanted to give. The first one is that Betsy and Chris Salzman have offered to do our Easter portraits again. So I don't know if you were here last year, Betsy set up shop like right outside here, and so on your way out from the service, you could go with you know, either with yourself or with some friends or with your family and get a free Easter portrait, and those were lovely. So come expecting to do that if you would like one. And the second is, is that we're also going to have our Easter egg hunt again. So last year for all the kids, we hid Easter eggs just out in this little play area here. I think we ran out of eggs, so this year Diane bought a whole bunch more. So if the kids wanna do that afterwards, we'll have little bags for them as well. So we'll do Easter well. So we're coming up here on the end of Lent, and we've been looking at Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. I'm sorry, I gotta take this thing off. It's too warm, and I'm all tangled. It is pretty, I bought it, I actually bought that in Jerusalem years ago. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> ah, sorry, Rachel. <laughs> so we've been reading Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, so we were looking at a lens through which we could view Jesus through the eyes of the oppressed. And so I think it's fitting, actually, that we end this sermon series as we're heading into Easter week with Palm Sunday, this beginning of the week that marks the final process of God ending scapegoating and sacrifice for all time. This is the time when God truly declares that he is the God of victims. He is the God of the disinherited. On Palm Sunday, you know, you remember this is the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as Iris so beautifully read to us this morning. He's in Jerusalem. This is the week. This is his final entrance into the city before his crucifixion. And he's heading there to celebrate the feast of the Passover. The feast of the Passover is when People celebrated their freedom from Egyptian oppression. It's still celebrated today. Like our small group had a Seder last night that I missed because I've been a little bit sick. But Lisa Ruby held a Seder, as Jewish people all over the world do, to mark this even to this day. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's going down into Jerusalem for the feast over along with tens of thousands of other people who are pouring into the town. Now Jerusalem is a city that's a bunch of hills. And to the east, there's a significant hill called the Mount of Olives. You've probably heard of it. So you've got Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and on the other side of that Mount of Olives is another little town called Bethany. And so Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, and he stops in Bethany, where he often stops, because he's got good friends there, Mary and Martha, and he gets a donkey. He procures a donkey, and he's hanging out there. It's probably about an hour to an hour and a half's walk from Bethany over the hill of the Mount of Olives down into the temple in Jerusalem. So he finds this donkey, and he's really popular in Bethany. And he's popular there because he had just had a significant miracle that he had done. He had raised Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, from the dead. So you can imagine that would cause some people to be talking about you. And so as word starts to spread that this guy who raised Lazarus from the dead People started to gather there. That town actually today is called Alazaria after Lazarus. That's the name of the city that is called um, today in Jerusalem. We've got loads of people from all over piling into Jerusalem. They're gathering in Bethany because this rabbi, the famous rabbi, is there. And so they start to give Jesus their cloaks. Because you know, he's found this donkey, and so they give him some cloaks so he can sit more comfortably on the donkey. And as he heads up the Mount of Olives and then heads back down, they start spreading their cloaks and spreading different palm leaves on the ground. And they start shouting things in excitement. They're shouting things like, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in heaven and glory on earth. 
as they're waving their palm branches. And at that point, they're projecting all of their hopes to this man who's riding humbly into the city. Right? They're projecting all of their hopes that this man might be the Messiah, this anointed one who would come and overthrow the Roman Empire, probably by force in their minds, so that the Jewish people wouldn't have to live under such heavy oppression and burdens. So they're all looking at Jesus. They're hoping this is the guy that's going to be their man. There's this old prophecy that they had heard from the prophet Zechariah. And the prophecy says this. This is the prophet speaking in the voice of God. He says, Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. Now I'm keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And he's going to proclaim peace to the nations, and he will extend his rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so the people are looking at him and they're thinking, maybe this is the man who's going to set up this rulership over the whole earth, bringing peace. And they had varying expectations about what that might look like. But what's striking to me is that this exuberant crowd that's there crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is crying those things in excitement and joy on Sunday. But just five days later, by Friday, this same crowd is yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Right? The crowd can turn on a dime. And Jesus knows this. He knows this about crowds. Luke tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city and he's looking at it, he wept. And he said, oh, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, maybe if I stand right here, Stops the ringing. That's a little better. Jesus is crying because of my, yeah. <laughs> if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, O Jerusalem, but even now it is hidden from your eyes. So the days are going to come upon you and your enemies are going to build an embankment against you. They're going to dash you to the ground. They're not going to leave one stone unturned because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. Right? Jesus knows that his land is a powder keg that's about to explode. You know, there's Republicans hating Democrats and Democrats hating Republicans and serious tensions between minority groups and, and police forces. Or, you know, maybe between Romans and Jews and within the Jewish and Samaritan populations, all of the internal conflict. I don't think we're quite to the point where Jerusalem of 2,000 years ago was, but we can kind of sense or understand what this tension might feel like. Jesus knows that his people are heading for trouble. He knows that there's a powder keg about to explode. And so this tension was mounting, and it was reaching a point where those internal rivalries and the desire for power and control would result in violence. And in fact, it does result in violence 40 years later when Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem. But here in our church, we've been talking a lot about the work of Rene Girard this last year. I know for some of you, you're like, man, I've heard his name so much. But there's quite a few of us here who are newer, who maybe haven't been listening to us talk about Girard over the last year. And so I'm going to go over just a little bit of his theory right now. So Girard was a lit crit and an anthropology professor at Stanford University for decades. And so he studied myths and literature, and he, he kind of came up with a certain pattern that he noticed throughout history. And in a nutshell, he says, you know, when big groups, when they start to mimic each other's destructive desire, like when they're competing for power or for whatever, and they get to the point where they're starting to have rivalries, 
eventually it's going to erupt into violence. And he says there's only one way to stave off big group violence, to delay this widespread eruption, to keep it from harming the larger group. And he says that's to identify a scapegoat or scapegoats who can carry the projected anxiety of the system. So let me give a practical example that I'll unpack. So hopefully this will be a little more helpful. So let's say that you work for a company. And the company that you work for is just bleeding money because it has all sorts of underlying dysfunctions. There's communication issues, there's process issues, there's system issues. And so the departments start blaming each other because there's a lack of clear leadership going on and a lack of clear expectations being communicated. And so you know how it goes in those situations. Various people start vying for power and sort of asserting their authority to see what they can do, even undercutting some of the bosses to achieve that. And the rivalries to determine who's really in charge start to get brutal and they can be hard to navigate. So when a company comes to that point, eventually it will deteriorate. Whether from literal violence, which is probably not likely in our culture with our cultural norms, but through infighting. And all of the infighting will eventually cause people to leave in droves, there'll be high turnover, or else the company will eventually go under because it can't function. Their underlying dysfunctions will get the better of them. And Gerard would say that will happen unless one of two things happens. The first is whether they deal with the underlying issues, if they can actually deal with the problems, which is the harder thing to do, or two, they can create a scapegoat. And that's what most groups do because creating a scapegoat is the easier thing to do. Right? So if the people at the company can rally around the idea that all of the problems of the company are actually the fault of like one person or one department, then they can blame all of, the, all of those things, all of the issues on that person. They can isolate them, they can bully them, they can undermine them, and then they can eventually either fire them or drive them to quit. And the person who's identified as a scapegoat is usually the most vulnerable in the group. It could even be the top person. It could be like the CEO, but it's somebody whose power has waned and they're a little bit vulnerable. Oftentimes that person stands out for having been different for one reason or another. And they'll be accused of causing all of the troubles, which will be a false accusation because no one is causing all of the troubles. They'll even be accused by their friends, by people who normally support them and love them as a boss or as a colleague or else their friends won't stand up for them. They'll be silent, hoping the best for themselves. You know, at least it's not them on the line. Gosh, it really sucks what's happened to Ramona. Did you see? But, and if that process is carried all the way out, right, if the scapegoat, if the one who's carrying all of the blame and all of the anxiety of the company is indeed fired or driven out, peace will descend on the employees. Peace will come about in the company. There'll be a sense of like, that needed to happen. That clearly needed to happen. And then even the victim, even the one who was made a scapegoat, will be expected to acknowledge the, injust or the justice of their own firing by the people who drew drove them out of the company. Like if they see somebody in the supermarket, that person might come up and be like, hey, how are you? And that person's like, yeah, you know, it's cool. However, that sense of peace is a false sense of peace, says Gerard because the company hasn't actually dealt with the real underlying problems, which were much larger than any one person or one group. And so to sustain this newfound peace, the company, he says, will eventually have to identify another scapegoat, and another, and another. And they'll have to keep doing that until eventually their problems of this, this functions get the better of them because they're not addressing them. 
And Gerard says that scapegoating brings false peace at the expense of the vulnerable, right? So a vulnerable person is picked out of a crowd, chosen to carry the sins of that company, and the only way to prevent it is to do the hard work with dealing with the issues and the rivalries before they go into violence or infighting. And so this lens that Gerard has provided, I think is pro it helps us see what's going on here with Jesus. All right, so we're back to Palm Sunday. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. He's watching all of the crowds who are in total support of him. And yet he's crying. Because he knows that that support will eventually evaporate the moment that he is blamed for all of the woes that are going on with Rome. Right, the moment that he's identified as a scapegoat and he can feel it. He knows the seriousness of the mounting tensions in his land. He knows the fickleness of the mob. Many of the leaders were already pointing fingers at him as the problem, saying that he was the cause of all of the troubles. And some of them had followers that had been seeing him in different towns and throwing stones at him. Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest that year, he understood the power of identifying a scapegoat to bring temporary social peace. Right after Jesus went and raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, Caiaphas says so. The Gospel of John says this, it says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, Jesus' friends, Mary and Martha, and they saw what Jesus did, raising Lazarus, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief of priests and the Pharisees, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which was like the ruling council. And they said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man, he's performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come and they're gonna take away both our temple and our nation. Right, that's what they believed was at stake, their temple and their nation. And here is the thing, they were right. That's what was at stake. It was true, it was not a false fear. The stakes were high as they often are when tensions are high in a scapegoating situation. So one of them in this group in the ruling council named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he spoke up and he said, you know nothing at all. You know nothing. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die. It's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And it says, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And then it was just a matter of time before the larger crowd started mimicking the accusers. And it didn't take long. Right? By the end of the week, the crowd had, in fact, effectively turned on Jesus. Right? Instead of appreciating his teachings and proclaiming him as a prophet, they falsely accused him of blasphemy. And they come to believe that it is his fault that the people are so stirred up against Rome. If he doesn't stop teaching, Rome is going to come and destroy them all. And so they arrested Jesus and they whipped together this crowd who was now screaming for the death of a man against whom they hadn't even heard charges. And Pilate, who was the Roman ruler, he knew Jesus was innocent. He says it three times in the Gospel of John. He said he couldn't find any crime with which to charge this man. Even Jesus' fans fall into line when the accusations are made against him, right? These are powerful primal forces at work in us when we're part of groups. It's part of our evolutionary development that we are resisting. Even those people who are naturally inclined towards supporting potential scapegoats almost always coalesce around false accusations. Not always, but almost always. Even if they don't entirely believe them. They will sacrifice an innocent person or a minority group for the sake of what appears to be peace for the larger in-group. 
Girard calls this dynamic mimetic contagion. The idea that once a core set of people begin to form a mob and start throwing accusations, humans start to imitate their desire and their violence. He says this violence, it spreads like wildfire and it consumes people who didn't even know that they were kindling. And so the people, they then, they took Jesus and they dressed him up like a buffoon. And they gave him a false crown of thorns that they pressed into his head and they put a purple robe on him and they beat him. They beat him until he looked nothing like them. They disfigured him, they mocked him, and then they paraded him through town with a cross on his back for all to see. Because the more different and the more other he appeared, the easier it was to dehumanize him and to kill him. And kill him they did. Right? Humans killed Jesus, not God. Humans killed Jesus. And it was not just the Jews, as so many anti-Semitic teachings have claimed through the years, that is a poisonous teaching. It was not just the Romans. The Bible is telling us that Jew and Gentile alike, who represent all of humankind, if Jesus represents the scapegoat to end all scapegoats, the ultimate scapegoat, the completely innocent scapegoat, the crowds represent us, all humans at all time. We executed Jesus. We took an innocent man and we accused him, we condemned him, we dehumanized him, we sacrificed him because of our sin. We projected our own anxiety and our dysfunctions and our blame onto him. When Jesus, when the Bible says that Jesus carried our sin to the cross, this was the heavy burden that he bore. It's the burden of the scapegoated. You know, the very first time I went to therapy after being fired two years ago, I've been in trauma therapy for two years. It's been great. I think I feel good. But I remember that very first time I went, and my therapist, she listened to sort of the general overview about what had happened to me, and she looked at me and she said, wow, you were scapegoated, which was her word, not mine, which is why I kept going back to her. I was like, oh, she gets this. She said, you were scapegoated, and you carried all of the shame of your community. It sounds like especially all of their sexual shame. How did that feel? I was like, well, not awesome. <laughs> you know, when I was in seminary, there was a lot of talk about how sometimes we treat celebrities as cultural scapegoats. You know, we build them up, we follow their careers, we, you know, like, look at how they dress, we adore them, and then inevitably, that lifestyle of living in the public eye is so difficult that they go through divorces or they go bankrupt or whatever, and we watch it all, you know, reading People magazine, and we kind of watch their public beating. And I'm just as guilty as anybody else. You know, I read People magazine in the grocery line. But I thought that's an interesting thought. It's serving something for us psychologically to project all of our hopes of like, wow, like fame and fortune and success onto somebody and then be like, yeah, they couldn't do it. You know, and to watch them carry our senses of failure and shame. Scapegoats carry a heavy load. And while on the cross, the Gospel of Luke tells us that rulers sneered at Jesus. They said, you know, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, if he's the chosen one. If you're the king of the Jews, take yourself off of this cross. But you know what? Jesus refused to do so, and he did it to fully identify with the oppressed. He made himself vulnerable to rejection and indignity and even death. And he did this to empathize with the poorest and the least among us. You know, he knows what it feels like. He knows what it's like 
for people to not believe you are who you say you are. He knows what it's like to have people falsely accuse him. He knows what it's like to have your motives questioned. He knows what it's like to have people question your connection to God or your disconnection to God, as it may be. He knows what it's like to have supporters or friends who just sort of watch as your ex beats you up publicly with all of your friends. He knows what that is. When you feel like you're being torn to shreds and spat on and struggling to carry your own personal cruciform burden, so often isolated and alone. And so many scapegoats in this world, whether it's a minority group or a person, has walked a similar path. And our Lord and our God, he knows intimately what that feels like. He understands the pain of that Via Dolorosa. Right? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so after Jesus, the scapegoat was killed in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one of the Roman executioners is shown saying that he knew Jesus was innocent, a son of God. Like the Gospel writers are underscoring Jesus' ultimate innocence. And his very words spoken as he hung on the cross, they unmasked the scapegoating system at work. He says what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? An innocent man spoke these words, and he wasn't a somewhat innocent man. He wasn't a man guilty of many things, but not the one thing they were accusing him of, which is what is so often at work in a scapegoating system. Like, I'm not a perfect woman. Scapegoats are not perfect people, but they're usually innocent of what they're being accused of. He was a wholly innocent man, and he was carrying all of the envy and the rivalry and the violent energy of the world projected onto him. And his ultimate and utter innocence reveals the foolishness the unjustness of this entire dynamic. And when he's speaking out there, he is speaking out to God on behalf of us, concerning us, all of humanity, they do not know what they're doing. It's just as true today of us humans as it was 2,000 years ago. Jesus says they don't even know what they're doing. And a hallmark of a Girardian cycle is this complete and utter belief that is held by the oppressors that they're innocent that they are maybe even in fact the actual victims. Having lived through an experience of being scapegoated, this dynamic was maybe the most surprising to me, but I was aware of it because I was aware of Girard, this idea that victimizers view themselves as victims. Pilate very likely saw himself as a victim in that whole thing, like, ah, I don't know what to do. People want me to kill this guy who's innocent. Why can't, you know, like, I'm just an innocent guy in this. Let me wash my hands. The crowd viewed themselves as innocent. Why can't this Jesus just stop being so ornery? He's bringing this on himself. I mean, yeah, he rode down into Jerusalem on a donkey. We were all excited, but then he had to go into the temple and start like overturning the money changers and breaking out a whip. He had to start clearing out the court of the Gentiles so that people from all races, tongues, and tribes can come in and worship God. He's doing this. Maybe he deserves it. And the crowd will go to great lengths to maintain that view so as not to feel the guilt of harming someone else for their, own sake, for their own sake, for their own peace of mind. And as Gerard predicts, Jesus' sacrifice brings a hushed relief. The ritual killing, which is what it is, a ritual killing, it marks the finale after a period of intense turbulence. Particularly that week between Jesus riding the donkey down into Jerusalem and his crucifixion. It was a particularly chaotic week 
And so after Jesus died, the crowd, it says they beat their breasts and they walked away. Right? The clouds came over and covered the sun. The earth was silent. It was like the whole earth just sighed. Women, ones who knew him from the Galilee, so likely they knew him as a child. It says they were standing at a distance watching and weeping. A few preparations were made for the body, but it was the Sabbath. So from that evening, for the next 24 hours, there was no work to be done. There was this tremendous lack of activity following all of the chaotic turbulence of the feast and the festival and the killing. And Jesus' sacrifice, it remains unremarkable and that it bears resemblance to so many stories of other scapegoats, including people who were crucified by the Romans, both before him and after him. And the Romans didn't just crucify Jesus, they crucified tens of thousands of men. But his story also remains immensely remarkable in that one, he was innocent, and that two, he doesn't stay sacrificed. And Jesus died, but Jesus also rose. And in doing so, God overturned our human verdict of the scapegoat of all scapegoats, everywhere, at all time. He overturned our human verdict of guilty. He declared sacrificing others over and done. He says, you are to do it no more. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The resurrection of Jesus, it obliterated the sacrificial system for all time. And I'm not going to say that much more about it because I don't want to steal Ken's Easter thunder for next week, but I hate like ending it Good Friday because it's just such a downer, you know? But I will close by saying that you know, renouncing our human propensity to take part in this violent scapegoating system that dehumanizes and harms the vulnerable is the call to all of humanity. And especially over these last few years, I feel like my understanding of the gospel has started to mature here, that this is what it actually means to follow Jesus. You know, when the Bible talks about the Satan, what well, Satan just means accuser in Hebrew. The Holy Spirit, the word that is used for that paraclete means advocate. Following Jesus means we renounce being part of the accusations, being part of the accusing mobs, accusing the vulnerable for our own sin and turning and being filled with the spirit of the advocate. We have to reject taking our own sins and projecting them onto others and then treating those people poorly so we can feel better about ourselves. We open ourselves to God, renewing our mind, transforming us so we can see what's actually going on. And this is especially pertinent, I think, in our culture today. He says, you know, we can't do this. We're trying to find the scapegoat of the day. We can't do this to Muslims. We can't do this to immigrants, to scientists, to journalists, to LGBTQ people, to women, to people of color, to our ex-partners, ex-boyfriends, husbands, wives, to the person who's the black sheep in our family, carrying all of the family sins. You know, if only they would stop and get their life together, everything would be okay. We cannot do that. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And this, in fact, is the narrow road, the narrow road that few find. All right, so this is why we're going to do this Good Friday vigil for the scapegoats. I think as my understanding of what Jesus was doing on the cross has evolved, I was like, man, what can we do to really mark in our community what Good Friday means for us today, here and now? So we're going to go down to the Diag after sundown. We'll have glow sticks because they're easier than candles. And we can't make it too big because the Diag was already reserved, you know, so we don't want to bring like a sound system. So it won't be that many people, I don't think. 
but I wrote out like a 10-page vigil, which is a call and response, so it's interactive, where we're praying for all of the scapegoats in our culture and remembering them with silence. It'll probably take 30, 40 minutes. And I think that's a good way that we can witness to who Jesus is and what he means in our culture right here in Ann Arbor. And last but not least, next Sunday is the Sunday that we do baptisms. So we only do baptisms once a year, or at least so far that's what we've done, because we have to blow up this, this big, we call inflatable hot tub we did last year, and it was pretty great. We have five people getting baptized that I know of. Three of them are infants, which is really sweet. So we'll, we'll use a pitcher and a bowl for the infants. The water's warm, and then I'll get into the tub. We do full immersion dunking for the adults. So it's, if you want to get baptized, now is the time to let me know, because next week is the week that we do it. And I want to say this, getting baptized doesn't mean that you don't have doubts about God, about Jesus, about faith. I say all healthy faith includes doubt. I don't think that we say that often enough. Doubt is part and parcel of a healthy faith. This does not mean that you have no doubts. This doesn't mean that you buy everything that we're saying part and parcel. It's not like here's the, the red pill and the blue pill, swallow one of them. You know, spirituality is a path. It's a journey. It's one that we grow on. It's ones where I think God expands our minds and our heart. What this is, is it's a physical sign of saying, you know, I am convinced and persuaded that this is the path to peace in this life, and I want to follow this rabbi Jesus and standing up for those who are vulnerable in our society that I am willing to have the courage to do that, to have my mind open, to be in relationship with God, to try and have a framework for my life where I'm living like that. And I need the guidance of a God who changes hearts. I want to open myself up to the spirit of the advocate. And so if you'd like to make a public pronouncement that, yeah, that's the kind of life that I'm going to try and live. This is the path. Get baptized. It's powerful. All right, I'm going to close with a little meditation. So if you're new, we often do two or three minutes of silence or guided meditation to end the sermon. And it doesn't matter if there's a little noise, people, babies make noise, but just sort of a general practicing of silence like our Quaker brothers and sisters do. And just start by taking a few deep breaths, relax in your body. On this Palm Sunday, as we remember Jesus walking into Jerusalem, I invite you to picture yourself as one of the crowd along the road and fill in some of the details as Jesus is riding that donkey down. Imagine what you're feeling. Hope, joy. The excitement that you feel in big crowds like in sports arenas. It feels good when everyone's excited together. As you see Jesus coming toward you, you notice that he's crying. 
as he's crying, he looks at you. He senses invitation to step away from the crowd. Now, you don't have to do this, but if you'd like, you can just spend the next few moments here just imagining asking Jesus to fill you with the spirit of that advocate, to give you the kind of strength and courage and wisdom that it takes to walk that path of laying down power for the sake of others. And if you'd like to remember before him, anyone in particular can be a group of people or maybe you're thinking of someone particularly vulnerable, whether they're a scapegoat or not, but maybe just take this time to hold them before Jesus. Holy Spirit of the living God, who is love, we ask that your spirit of the advocate would fill us and refill us, renew our minds, give us eyes to be able to see where your spirit is at work. We lift those to you, Lord, who are vulnerable and hurting this week. As we remember the death of the scapegoat to end all scapegoats. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.